I like also thinking about doing no harm. Uh, if you want to expand your consciousness, uh, would you do it at the cost of harming others? What if those others are a frog or a plant? Is it worth it? So I think those are very important questions to ask. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. drugs are well beyond the quote renaissance stage and relatively recently entered a gold rush as dozens of companies maneuver themselves to make this nascent industry as profitable as possible for themselves. At least that's part of their motivation. It's a bit of a double-edged sword for folks that want to see an end to the drug war but also don't want access to these substances available only through doctors and therapists. While Big Pharma slowly ambles onward to transform psychedelics into the next blockbuster pharmaceutical, the plant medicine decriminalization movement is steadily growing in the United States. It all started with Denver, Colorado in mid-2019, when the city council passed an ordinance making psilocybin magic mushrooms the lowest police priority. That doesn't legalize shrooms, especially not sales or distribution, but it does make it so that possession and personal use of psilocybin mushrooms is very unlikely to invite any legal consequences. Inspired by this change, which won the vote by literally half a percentage point, many other cities soon followed suit, including Oakland, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and many others. But many of these places went a step further, decriminalizing not just psilocybin mushrooms, but virtually all psychedelic plants, iboga, ayahuasca, mescaline cactus, and others. During the last major election, Washington, D.C. voted to decriminalize all plant and fungi-based psychedelics, one of the biggest wins yet for this burgeoning movement. But whether the laws ever catch up or not, plenty of people are taking plant-based psychedelics for spiritual, medicinal, and yes, even recreational purposes. No judgment here. The thriving popularity of naturally occurring entheogens has sparked a lot of concern from some in the psychedelics community who warned that overuse of these plants for any purpose could drive them to virtual extinction. Imagine if ayahuasca became like sylphium, the ancient contraceptive used by the Greeks and Romans that was consumed to such excess that it is now believed to have vanished from the earth. Could the same thing happen to plant-based psychedelics? I'm Troy Farah and you're listening to Narcotica. We've got a great show planned for you today, but first, I have to remind you that, for now, Narcotica is ad-free. We often forget to even include mention of this, but we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com narcotica. It's the best way for folks who appreciate this program to support us. Even a little bit goes a long way. I know this message is probably annoying, but it's better than hearing about some posh rehab or CBD product, at least I hope. So that's it. If you like the show, join our Patreon. We might make a Venmo or something. I don't know. Or tell a friend about us. Most podcasts spread through word of mouth. So tell everyone about Narcotica, a podcast about why getting high shouldn't be illegal. On the show today, we have Dr. Anya Ermakova, a researcher based in London with a very extensive background in conservation, ethnobotany, neuroscience, psychiatry, and more. Almost all of which relates back to psychedelics in some way. She has a master's in conservation science from Imperial College London, a PhD in psychiatry from the University of Cambridge, and a bachelor's degree in biological sciences from the University of Edinburgh. She's worked as a science officer at the Beckley Foundation, 
and has provided psychedelic welfare and harm reduction services with PsyCare UK and Zendo and so much more. It's a great honor. Anya, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for the introduction. Pleasure to be here. Let's introduce uh, listeners to you a little bit more. How did you uh, get involved in psychedelics? I know your background, I think it began more in psychiatry, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I studied biology, but then I decided to specialize in neuroscience, and I uh, went straight into PhD in neuropsychiatry, where I was uh, studying uh, the origins of psychosis. I was trying to figure out why delusions uh, form and persist, and through reading a lot about uh, mental health and problems brought me to think about uh, consciousness and altered states of consciousness and uh, uh, several lectures that I heard during my PhD. One of them was by Professor David Nutt about psychedelics. Another was Dr. Ben Sessa, who is a British psychiatrist and a really amazing public speaker. So I listened to their lectures and uh, um, at the end of my PhD, I got me thinking like, what do I want to do? How do I want to uh, get into this field? And uh, I was lucky enough to get a job at the Beckley Foundation, which is a European counterpart of MAPS. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization that sponsors research into psychedelics. And that's how I got to be professionally involved with psychedelics. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I like a lot of your research. It's really interesting. I like how it covers so many different areas. Um, so today I really want to talk about, uh, you know, psychedelic plants and sustainability, uh, the environment and that kind of thing. Um, but first, I'd kind of like to gauge your thoughts on the decriminalization movement in general in the U.S. So uh, to give some background, there's a lot of different cities and states that are passing laws or are considering to pass laws that basically make psychedelic plants the lowest uh, police priority um, so that you know, if the police have literally nothing else to do, maybe they'll bother you for having some shrooms on you. But in general, the idea is that they'll look the other way and that personal use, rather than uh, selling it or having like some sort of industry, is allowed. But what are your thoughts on this moment in U.S. history? I think it's a wonderful development and uh, much needed and long, long waited for. And uh, actually, United States is a lot more... Uh, ahead than, for example, UK. I know uh, Portugal decriminalized all drugs uh, in the early 2000s, but, uh, and uh, we all hoped that uh, other countries in Europe will follow because it was an incredibly successful experiment. Uh, and uh, it's really, um, uh, in terms of uh, public uh, health, it was really, really successful. But unfortunately, other countries haven't followed. And now, almost 20 years uh, later, finally, we can see uh, movements in the United States and only with psychedelics for now, but who knows, maybe uh, other drugs would follow as well with the criminalization. I really hope so. One criticism that I have of the decriminalization movement is that it talks a lot about plant-based medicine, um, but it seems to exclude uh, you know, opium or coca leaves or even cot, uh, stuff like that. I mean... And I, I kind of understand why, like, there's um, there's a certain, like, palatability of, uh, of you know, public consciousness. Like, they're not going to allow people to just, like, start growing their own opium or using that, like, because there's a stigma against that. Um, but I, I also feel like 
you know, it's 2021, maybe we should stop asking for little incremental changes and just start demanding an end to this whole thing. And I don't know. It's easy for me to be critical of this kind of thing. But, you know, I, I also am a little impatient, to be honest. I want to see I want to see people have, have access to all sorts of plant medicine. It's ridiculous, in my opinion, to make plants illegal. Yeah, I absolutely on the same page with you. And I would love to see all drugs decriminalized. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think most people want to step carefully and go in the incremental steps. And they think, okay, maybe uh, if we rate har uh, drugs by the by their harms, for example, and uh, if you use this approach and start with decriminalizing least harmful drugs, uh, which would be psychedelics, and uh, then as public opinion changes, uh, slowly move on to the uh, next uh, next steps. I think that's that's the most of the reasoning behind. But I fully agree with you that, especially in the United States, with this horrendous opioid epidemics and all sorts of uh, health crisis, it is important to decriminalize all drugs and spend those money for helping the people rather than putting them to jail and getting their assets. Yeah, absolutely. So a growing problem in the psychedelic space uh, seems to be sustainability. There's all this sudden interest in these psychoactive plants and fungi, which has inspired uh, psychedelic tourism, uh, people traveling to places like Peru or Mexico for, quote, genuine experiences with things like iboga or ayahuasca. Uh, this is a growing trend that many in psychedelic circles are, you know, you know, raising the alarm bells. They say this could threaten the existence of these plants, that they could be poached to virtual extinction. Um, let's start with Tim Ferriss. He's an entrepreneur and lifestyle guru. Uh, he's donated several million dollars to psychedelic research. In late February, Tim uh, wrote a blog titled An Urgent Plea to Users of Psychedelics. Let's consider a more ethical menu of plants and compounds. And in this list, he uh, includes a whole bunch of naturally occurring psychedelics, from 5-MeO-DMT to Cambo, uh, which he says people interested in should avoid unless they have a really good reason for it. And then he gives some of these alternatives, psychedelics that kind of uh, more sustainable, less impact on the environment maybe, uh, but can kind of give some people the same uh, medicinal value. Uh, we'll get into the details of some of these plants, uh, you know, the pros and cons of these, his argument here. But what do you think of it overall, What his, what the statement that he's making? Well, I believe that Tim Ferriss can reach a lot of people and uh, a lot of people would read this blog and uh, take it into consideration. And his message overall is very necessary and important and timely. Uh, so, and I think his motives are uh, good and for many people, his advice would be uh, useful. I have uh, uh, certain disagreements with his approach or at least with uh, some uh, some of the things, and of course, uh, you have to uh, think that he approaches it from uh, the point of view of Tim Ferriss and his own moral and ethical judgments that a lot of people would uh, disagree with, for example, or uh, not think in the same way he is. So, but it is a very important perspective, and I think very important words that to hear. And uh, many of those questions, I. I also uh, encourage people to ask, like, for example, if you are participating in uh, ceremonies, you have to ask the questions, where do plant medicine come from? Where does, uh, where does uh, 
toad secretions come from, who harvested it, when was it ethical, uh, and what not. So this is, these are very, very important questions. And I like also thinking about doing no harm. Uh, if you want to expand your consciousness, uh, would you do it at the cost of harming others? What if those others are a frog or a plant? Is it worth it? So I think those are very important questions to ask. Yeah. Um, psychedelics have been, for me personally, a really great tool for having empathy for nature uh you know it's it's kind of embarrassing to admit but like before i took psychedelics like i didn't really care that much about nature uh like like now i can feel the empathy in an insect and insects are some of my favorite things to study and and to witness and before that i it was really just kind of it was hard to feel that like, get into the perspective of an insect and like care that it can suffer expanding your consciousness using psychedelic plants like i do have that consideration now like am i going to do it at the expense of something even even like if you think it's oh it's just a toad it's just it's just a plant i think that those considerations are important and that for whatever reason my experience is not unique a lot of people feel that way they take psychedelics and then suddenly like oh i'm not just this brain in a body like i'm this whole part of this whole ecosystem like we are it's cliche to say, but we are all connected to this nature and to think that we're separate is, uh, it's completely narrow minded. It's myopic. Um, yeah, I, I, it's very, very true. And there is actually very interesting research coming out from uh, the Imperial College London. And it's led by my friend, Dr. Sam Gandhi, who studies nature connectedness and how psychedelics can increase nature connectedness. And what is remarkable, this uh, finding, uh, he, he truly believes that it uh, invokes something innate in human nature, that we are, part, we are nature, we are part of it. And uh, he believes that it can, uh, this is not only for, for example, people who take psychedelics uh, for uh, exploration and stuff. He even sees this uh, pattern of increased nature connectedness in people who take psychedelics within clinical trials in those very medical settings. Even they experience this increase in nature connectedness amongst other things. So he truly believes that it speaks towards something universal and an optimist in me also really wants to believe in it. And I see it true for so many people around me. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, it's not, it's not everybody's experience. A lot of people can take these drugs and like, they don't feel more spiritual. They don't feel more connected to nature and that's fine. Does the researcher you mentioned, I didn't catch his name. Um, does he have a theory for what the underlying mechanism is for this? Or maybe you have your own theory, like maybe just like kind of like dissolving the default mode network is kind of related to uh, this experience. Like why do we, why do we feel more of a connection to nature on psychedelics? Uh, he relates it to the experience of uh, ego dissolution and this experience of becoming one, one with the universe and uh, he likes to talk about an overview effect as well, how this contributes to this sense of connection to nature, where the overview effect is, uh, say, what uh, cosmonauts or astronauts experience 
when uh, they look at the earth from space and uh, you feel this uh, fragility and the beauty of this uh, uh, this uh, system, this organism, and you feel part of it. And this experience of awe and the beauty of everything, this also relates to the mystical experiences that are so important for the therapeutical action of psychedelics. And uh, he, he thinks that uh, that also contributes to nature relatedness. Now, it's really interesting. And I can understand why so many people right now are attracted to this idea. Uh, they hear all these anecdotes in, in the media or see stuff in scientific literature. And they're like, well, I want that. And, you know, hopefully they get the experience that they, they're looking for. But that brings us to sustainability, uh, because as more people find these plant medicines, uh, the, the interest rises and that increases the, uh, you know, harvesting of them. And we live in a capitalist society for the most part, and uh, that really just drives consumption and not in a way that's uh, where we think long term about, okay, so I harvest this vine today. Will it be here in 10 years? Will it be there for the next generation? That kind of thing. I think a good place to start is with the sustainability of ayahuasca ingredients. Um, Ayahuasca is a brew. It can be made a lot of different ways, um, but it's commonly made out of, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher this name, uh, but, but Baniesteriopsis capivine, uh, and then the Psychotria viridis shrub. These You have to mix two of these plants together. One is a vine, one is a shrub. One contains an MAOI, the other one contains DMT, and they kind of work together in this synergistic way to create the ayahuasca experience. Uh, when we last spoke, Anya, uh, you said that you thought it was very unlikely that the vine would go extinct in the wilds. Can you tell me a little more about why? Uh, the reason why I'm saying this is that the vine grows actually in quite a lot of all across the Amazon rainforest. Its uh, distribution is fairly wide. And what we see now and re re documented reported shortages of it are in the centers of uh, ayahuasca trade, for example, in Iquitos. And even there, a lot of people start to cultivate it. There is even a, a phrase that I heard people describe it as a cash crop. And as you mentioned, there is increased knowledge about ayahuasca and more and more foreigners are coming to experience it. And enterprising locals are starting to grow it. But another reason why I think that ayahuasca is not necessary is probably not something that um, is uh, in urgent need of protection, is that it's a fairly fast-growing uh, vine. And uh, unlike, for example, peyote, it doesn't take 10 years to mature. It can be harvestable within one year of planting. And uh, I think uh, when it comes to uh, Amazon and ayahuasca, Probably the most disturbing piece of news that I heard about it uh, was, uh, for example, the increase in trade in Jaguar parts fueled by ayahuasca tourism. And that was really, really disturbing because there are a lot less Jaguars. And if somebody goes to the Amazon and has an ayahuasca trip and has visions of Jaguars and then decides to take a memento of a Jaguar claws or teeth or or whatever other body parts, this is highly, highly responsible and uh, very upsetting. Uh, but this said, I don't want to say that people shouldn't care about ayahuasca wine. 
what I'm saying is, of course, if you're going to do ayahuasca, it's very important to ask the question, is it cultivated? Is it harvested sustainably? Where is it taken from? Where is it going? How does it affect local communities? Uh, you always have to ask this question. And you have to ask those questions, not just when it comes to ayahuasca. It's the same relates to where does your meat come from? Do you even eat meat? Where does your soy come from? Where does your palm oil come from? And I think this mindset that, you know, we should worry about ayahuasca and not worry about, say, palm oil is is uh, very narrow-minded. I think we need to think of it in a scale. And uh, unfortunately, human activity is destroying nature in uh, pretty much every every possible way. So I think it's very important uh, to think about it uh, holistically, in a sense. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like, you're definitely not saying that, oh, just go take as much ayahuasca vine as you want. Like, it's going to be fine. Like, you have to think about it you have to consider basically every product you consume. I mean, we have stickers on our coffee that says this is fair trade. Sometimes there's a little story in the back and who knows if it's true or not. But like, you know, they will tell you like, oh, we have this relationship with this coffee plantation. Like we pay our workers fairly. We try to ship this sustainably. We use recyclable packaging like fair trade ayahuasca. I think that is, uh, you know, something that could be something to look forward to in the future, like understanding that. Some sort of certification scheme for ayahuasca or using cultivated alternatives. I know in Hawaii, for example, there is lots of ayahuasca growing and a lot of this ayahuasca supplies uh, ceremonies around the world. Or you can you don't even have to use uh, uh, the traditional plants that you mentioned, uh, Psychotria viridis and Ministeriopsis carpi. There are plenty of ayahuasca analogs that you can substitute. And actually several of those ayahuasca analogs are considered invasive species, depending on the country you are in. For example, one of the plants that are in the United States, the language is used noxious weed, is Syrian uh, rue. And it grows all around uh, Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and it's highly common, and it contains the same uh, MOI inhibitors that you can potentially use uh, as an ayahuasca analog. Uh, likewise, uh, the plant uh, mimosa, uh, from which bark you can uh, uh, contains DMT. Again, it's considered invasive species, and it grows widely distributed Mexico and south of the United States that, again, can be used instead of um, psychotria leaves. Yeah, that's a really good point. There are some pretty good alternatives, aren't there? How do you feel about pharmawaska? That's the, uh, I think that's a term that's used to describe like a synthetic kind of ayahuasca. And a lot of people I hear aren't really, they think that's not as good because it's synthetic chemicals you're putting together. They sort of have the same experience, but because it's not coming from nature, they feel like there's something that's missing or maybe there's, I don't know how you feel about pharmawaska. I mean, I as a trained as a Western scientist and uh, not necessarily believing in particular uh, spirits, uh, I would say, of course, it's an acceptable uh, alternative. Uh, however, I know many people have different opinions and they do believe that uh, particular plants have their own uh, quality of the experience and uh, 
it's very important for them to only use certain plants. So I think it all depends on the worldview. That actually brings up a point that I really want to emphasize on this podcast is that nothing about this episode is intended to be telling people what they should or should not do. I'm not really uh, a fan of, you know, giving people a list of rules of what they should and should not do. But I hope that people that are listening to this care about the environment and they care about where they're sourcing their drugs from and that they can make these considerations. At the end of the day, everybody has to make their own decision about what they're comfortable putting in their body and where it came from. I want to go back to something that you said earlier about uh, uh, the Jaguar trade being involved with ayahuasca. I think that's something that maybe people don't think about a lot. Um, that being a connection, what role does, uh, you know, Jaguar play in the ayahuasca ceremony? Uh, there are a lot of uh, cultural associations between Jaguar and ayahuasca, and it comes from uh, this uh, combination of indigenous beliefs and mythology and the iconography of ayahuasca. It's very often like the first thing you Google when you Google ayahuasca, what I bet would be something to do with Jaguars. And it's very, very common in cosmology of indigenous people in the Amazon who traditionally used ayahuasca. And I think it somehow moved into our own discourse and uh, affects people and affects their behavior. And so because the jaguar is kind of this icon of the ayahuasca experience, people are killing jaguars more and using their skins or their, I don't know what else they would use, like their bones and stuff, right? Like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wasn't saying that like ayahuasca tourists are killing jaguars, but uh, there there always hasn't been uh, an uh, black market trade in the jaguar body parts. And that article that I am quoting right now was saying that over recent years, this black market trade uh, shows increased demand in jaguar body parts, and they link it to association with ayahuasca tourism. Interesting. Uh, I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. It's uh, one of those things about unintended consequences and certain things that are not obvious connections to make. Yeah. I mean, even the traveling to Peru or something like that is, you know, that's got a big carbon footprint. Uh, I think people need to decide, like, do I really need to go to South America to have this experience or could I have it locally? Um, and then there's a the controversy of that, like, you know, you're bringing some of this culture to another place. Like, I think there was a New Yorker article several years ago that was really critical of an ayahuasca circle in New York City, for example. And I kind of understand both sides of that, like, you know, bringing this to New York. Mm -hmm. There is also, uh, I think, uh, going to ayahuasca and do it in the jungle speaks to a lot of need of... Uh, modern Western people to connect to something ancient, to primeval, to have some sort of ritual that we somehow lose touch in our lives. So I think I, I can very much see the appeal of going somewhere in the jungle and trying to have as authentic experience as possible. But unfortunately, now the more people are doing it, the in a sense, the less authentic it becomes and the more commercial it becomes. And there are more and more practitioners and we hear about all sorts of stories of unscrupulous ayahuasqueros that violate certain ethical practices and codes uh, about the devastating effect it has on the even the local communities and the places. 
But on the other hand, the effect might not be devastating. It gives people jobs and provides a constant supply of tourists. It's a complex issue, ayahuasca tourism. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's very nuanced. There's lots of different moving parts. And like, it's hard to say, especially for me, I have no authority on this, to say what's good or bad. It's just educating people on the different aspects of this. Let's talk about iboga. Uh, this is a shrub that grows in Africa and contains the drug ibogaine. Uh, this is supposedly a really good for treating addiction. Just one experience is enough to undo addiction, but the drug is also cardiotoxic, which means it can damage the heart, uh, which is why companies like MindMed, this is a psychedelic startup company, are exploring using 18MC. This is an analog that works, allegedly works like Ibogaine, without the hallucinations or the heart issues. But a lot of people, I mean, until that comes out, like are turning to the plant. There was this just article in Time Magazine uh, about a veteran with PTSD that was feeling really desperate, went down to Mexico, took some ibogaine, had a very harrowing experience. It's not a very comfortable trip. I've never taken ibo iboga before, but uh, everything I've heard about it says it's pretty unpleasant. But anyway, this plant is key to Bwiti spiritual practices in West Central Africa. And it, because it's becoming more popular, uh, there are reports that the, there's less and less of the plant. Uh, Tabernathe iboga is the main one. Uh, but it seems like there's another one that you can use to extract ibogaine called Voya Kenga Africana, which is a tree. What do you think about iboga? Is it as threatened as people say? Is the alternative just as good? In terms of iboga in, uh, in Gabon, it is threatened. And actually, there have been, in the uh, recent years, there have been several legislations in Gabon uh, indicating that uh, like forbidding experts uh, and uh, there were several reports, one of them commissioned by the Gabonese government that identified uh, several threats to uh, Iboga growing there. I think it is very true that there is there are uh, problems and shortages with the Bernante Iboga in Gabon. Uh, that said, it also grows in Congo and Cameroon and certain other West African countries around it. And we have no information whatsoever about the status of Iboga there. Uh, but then again, there is a lot of problems going on in Congo and uh, Cameroon, so probably it's not very conductive to, to conservation studies and, and research. And there have been, uh, there is a very good report from uh, ICERS uh, about uh, where they interviewed local uh, practitioners and growers in Gabon, and they all indicate that there are shortages and there is less and less of it available due to increase of increased in demand. And there is uh, even uh, some worrying trends about uh, Imboga, actually, that uh, also came from one of the Gabonese government reports, uh, that um, the threats to Imboga are not just you know, increase of demand. Again, as elsewhere in the world, a lot of problems come from deforestation and from uh, people moving to urban environments and a lot of land disappearing and being used for something else. And there is also very interesting connection with um, ivory trade. Apparently, uh, there are some uh, reports. So elephants uh, eat iboga plants and they're actually important in distributing seeds uh, of uh, iboga. And there have been uh, reports of elephant 
poachers, people who poach ivory, uh, also engaging in uh, poaching iboga. Wow, I did not know that. So if elephants eat iboga, do they get a psychoactive effect from it? No, they eat uh, fruits and uh, the psychoactive uh, component is in the root bark. Right. So that's, I don't think they get high, they just get a nice fruit. <laughs> I don't know why, but it was uh, kind of funny to think about. I mean, lots of animals, you know, even going back to jaguars, I believe, uh, use psychoactive plants. Um, we're, humans aren't the only animals that seek it out. Well, what about this alternative? Do you think Voacanga africana, this tree, is a better source of iboga that maybe people could look to instead of uh, the, the, the typical iboga plant that people go for? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the thing is Wakanga Africana, and it's uh, just to say, it's not just Wakanga Africana that has Wakangin, uh, uh, which is uh, one of the, not quite a precursor, but you can synthesize ibogaine from Wakangin uh, through certain very easy chemical steps. But there are several species of the genus Wakanga that have Wakangin that can be used. Wakanga uh, Africana is just very uh, uh, best known and it grows in Africa and it grows at a much uh, wider um, number of habitats than uh, iboga. And uh, another thing with the uh, wakanga is that you can actually extract wakangin from the fruits. So you don't have to uh, debark the roots of the tree, which can be a lot more dangerous for the tree, if not lethal. So in this way, that's that's why wakanga is more sustainable because you use fruits, it grows a lot, uh, it's a lot more widely distributed. But also uh, wakanga africana uh, is uh, used by a lot of pharmaceutical companies to produce several drugs. I don't remember them on top of my head, but but yeah, several pharmaceutical companies extract uh, alkaloids from wakanga africana and. There is a big trade going on in uh, Wakanga fruits. There are like hundreds of thousands uh, like, uh, of tons of the fruits exported. So I would imagine there already exist plantations of Wakanga to supply this market, pharmaceutical market. Interesting. And it's, it might be even possible to tap into the pharmaceutical market because if they extract some al alkaloids from Wakanga but not Wakangin, a different one, then maybe it can be a byproduct that can be used to produce uh, ibogaine from it. Yeah, hopefully. Um, well, uh, let's talk about uh, peyote and mescaline cacti since we're talking about plants still. Um, you know, I don't think San Pedro or sort of related species are going to go extinct anytime soon. It grows relatively quickly and it's everywhere. Uh, peyote, on the other hand, is a small cactus that grows very slowly. Uh, it holds extreme significance to many indigenous people and is increasingly threatened by development and poaching in Texas and Mexico, uh, the only place on earth where peyote grows wild. Uh, you have a recent preprint paper on peyote conservation titled Ecology and Conservation of Peyote in Texas, Comparative Survey of Lafaforia Williamsi, uh, Populations in Tamalupin Thorn Scrub and Chihuahuan Desert. Can you summarize a little bit about what you found and what you think should be done? Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, this question is the one I probably can answer you most <laughs> extensively because that was the project of my study and that's what I uh, researched um, 
a lot more thoroughly than uh, others. I actually done my master's about peyote and I continue working with the Cactus Conservation Institute uh, on peyote conservation. Uh, uh, what I wanted to say about peyote is uh, it's uh, of all the psychedelics mentioned in Tim Ferriss' blog or generally affected by, uh, uh, by consumption, uh, peyote is the most endangered. And this is the, the biggest cause for concern, I would say, uh, because uh, particularly in the United States where it only grows in uh, small areas of Texas, in uh, South and West Texas. And uh, these areas where it can grow are actually rapidly disappearing because of uh, land use change, because it's more profitable for uh, local landowners, uh, for ranchers to either grow something on their land or to uh, what is called root plow the land, which is remove the native uh, thorny vegetation and uh, uh, put some grasses in it. And uh, if you have the grasses, for example, buffalo grass, uh, as you can uh, support a lot more cattle than with the native cacti and shrubs. So a lot of ranchers prefer to you to do that rather than uh, protect the Malipan thorn scrub, which is the scientific name of that of this thorny brush that grows in South Texas. And uh, another issue for peyote in the, uh, again, I'm mostly talking about the United States because that's where I've done my research, uh, is uh, there is a huge demand uh, from the members of the Native American church who use peyote as a medicine and sacrament uh, in their um, religious ceremonies. And uh, if you look at uh, the data from departments of Texas Department of Public Safety, it shows that about a million plants are legally harvested annually to, uh, to go uh, into the ceremonies. And uh, by all means, there are indications that this is not enough to satisfy demand. And, and the buttons are becoming smaller and smaller because uh, all the larger plants are harvested and it just doesn't have enough time to regenerate. Yeah, this is an ongoing debate, and the whole, uh, I guess, cactus scene uh, is whether there should be concentrated conservation efforts to grow as much peyote as possible. But uh, yeah, I guess, what do you think could be done about this? And I, I guess, really, I just want to emphasize, like you said, that uh, it seems like the biggest threat to peyote is um, is not people that are harvesting it, but it's really the development. It's the people that own this private land and are just tearing it up with this root plowing. There's other renewable energy even are moving in and like that's damaging. And I think that that's something that is something we should underline is a little bit. It's like, if we want to help these plants, perhaps we should focus less on the people that are consuming them and more on the big businesses, the landowners that don't seem to have any respect for the plants. And they actually don't have any incentives to look after the plants uh, or uh, conserve them in any way. And uh, a lot of landowners, of course, not everyone, there are lots of landowners that uh, want to look after their land and want to preserve it in its natural state. But some landowners want to make money, want to survive, want to have their cattle there, want to sell leases for oil and gas for wind turbines. 
So it's, it really depends. And uh, because Piyota is not uh, in any of the, doesn't have any environmental protection, there are actually uh, rumors and concerns about poachers, that landowners don't want any poachers coming to the land, to trespassing on the land to harvest. There actually is incentive to not even have Piyota and certainly not advertise that they have Piyota on their land. Yeah, I mean, it's completely legal for them to just destroy these plants, even though it, unless you're a member of the Native American church or a federally recognized tribe, possessing the plant could give you, you know, federal prison time, I believe. It's very illegal unless you have this exemption uh, that was hard fought. It took a long time to get it. And, and I think that indigenous people really are afraid of losing that privilege again. And, and yet this sacrament that they have uh, is just wantonly destroyed by whoever wants to because they don't want to attract the wrong attention. What they seem as or perceive as the wrong intention. Let's talk a little bit about your research and, and like, you know, you, you went out to Texas, you surveyed a couple of sites. If I remember correctly, some people didn't want you to come by their land. There was some resistance. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I uh, I surveyed sites both in South Texas and West Texas, uh, particularly in South Texas, where there is commercial harvesting of peyote and where it's more well known about peyote's existence. Uh, there are lots of landowners that I talked to that were very happy to talk to me or even uh, give me a tour of their land informally, but they were adamant for that I not include their, uh, their place as my study site because they're thinking that, again, it would attract attention to people and they would somehow find out that Piyota grows on their land. That's uh, one thing. And second thing, a lot of uh, landowners are actually really concerned about Piyota being listed as endangered. And uh, there was a big resistance against conservationists and federal governments interfering with their autonomy of what's going on in their land. And they somehow thought that if I, as a biologist, survey their sites and figure out how little of peyote is left, that would somehow contribute to its listing under Endangered Species Act. Yeah, it's unfortunate that people are so resistant to protecting plants. Like, I live near Joshua Tree, California, and there's been this debate with the state. Uh, they're trying to get Joshua Trees listed as endangered, and so many developers are upset about this because they want to be able to cut down these plants whenever they want. And they look at the, you look at the landscape and there's millions of them out there. Um, and they're like, well, what do you, what's your problem? Like, why would you say that this is a threatened plant? Like there's so many of them, but you know, you cut down one or two or three here or there and it, like it adds up and they grow so slowly and they're threatened by climate change. The moths that pollinate the Joshua trees uh, are threatened you know, and if they can't pollinate the Joshua trees, like they can't keep continuing. And most of the specimens out here are really old, actually. I, just to give an example, basically kind of off topic about how, you know, in the Southwest, there's a lot of resistance to listing plants as endangered because people are afraid of losing their rights to their property. So do you feel like uh, Tim Ferriss's suggestion that you should take maybe San Pedro, a different cactus that contains mescaline, uh, instead of peyote, I kind of feel that way. Like, unless it really is your spiritual background, you should avoid peyote. But that's just my opinion. Uh, no, I absolutely agree. Like, if if you really don't mind what 
cactus to try or you just want to try some some mescaline sure there is synthetic mescaline and there is uh, san pedro cactus and uh, related to hinopsis or trichocereus species of cacti uh, however i also want to stress that again in other places all over the world peyote is uh, not listed as schedule one unlike in the united states mescaline is of course but not peyote like, for example in canada you can grow your own peyote and i personally see absolutely no problem with people growing their own peyote as a beautiful it is a beautiful cactus it's nice to have on your windowsill or greenhouse and uh, if you of course don't harvest it from the wild but all over the world there is a thriving horticultural trade in uh, peyote there are greenhouses full of it in germany in czech republic uh, there are you know lots of cactus enthusiasts in uk that grow peyote there are it's very popular as an ornamental plant in uh, japan and taiwan and so i think if your actions do not endanger plants in the wild we should not use uh, judge people for whatever they take and the way they alter their consciousness if uh, the consequences of their actions are not damaging to nature or to others yeah that's a really good point i you know my my response was really u.s centric i was thinking just in the united states which is you know my blind spot there but uh it's less consequential to grow it in other places and yeah it is a really beautiful cactus it is so small it's just like this it's kind of fractally the flowers are beautiful and pink. Um, it's a beautiful plant. Um, but yeah, I think I should definitely emphasize that what I was talking about is harvesting it in the wild, not taking it from a somewhere cultivated. Yeah, if you cultivate your own or grow your own from seeds, I don't know, and you live in the country where it's legal, then why not? Uh, Canada is actually an interesting example. In Canada, San Pedro is illegal, but Piyota is not which is completely opposite of what's in the United States. That's interesting. <laughs> Canada has some really weird drug laws, like uh, cannabis is legal, obviously, but salvia, I don't believe, is. Um, salvia yeah. is actually a good example of how cultivation is uh, actually <laughs> helps because, uh, you know, salvia uh, in the wild, it grows in a very, very small place in Mexico, in the Mazatec Mountains, and it's highly localized and actually a very rare plant in the wild. But because of extensive cultivation, it grows pretty much everywhere in the world. That's why we don't see the reports about, for example, lots of tourists going to Mazatec Mountains to harvest salvia because it's freely available in cultivation. That's uh, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Uh, salvia was not on my list of plants to talk about today, but uh, you know, that's true for a lot of actual salvia salvia genus. Like uh, there's salvia apiana. Uh, which is, you know, people call it white sage, I believe. And that's, you know, people like to burn that a lot. Uh, it smells good when you burn it, but um, it, it seems to be over-harvested in the wild. But, like, if people grow it themselves, then it's less of a problem. I'm actually right now drinking salvia tea, salvia officinalis. <laughs> I love salvia plants, like all of the different ones. Like, they have so many different interesting properties. Let's move on to animals. Uh, there's only a few animals on Earth that produce psychedelic compounds. Uh, the best known is probably the Sonoran Desert Toad, also known as the Colorado River Toad. Uh, it produces a venom that contains a bunch of things, 
but as far as I know, the only thing that seems to be psychoactive is 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, people confuse this drug with DMT a lot, but just because they have a similar name doesn't actually mean that they are the same drug or even that related. Uh, they are pretty much, they're very different psychedelics as far as I can tell. Um, DMT, we had this episode on DMT. If you want to listen to it, go back to uh, Can DMT Help You Talk to Aliens? It's kind of a sarcastic title. Um, but DMT can launch folks into hyperspace. Uh, where they enter like an Alex Gray painting of swirling chemicals, and sometimes people encounter these beings, which they call some people call them angels or aliens or demons, or there's all kinds of different like descriptors for these beings that you meet on DMT. On the other hand, 5-MeO DMT is more like just a bright white light, pure bliss. You're in Nirvana almost, or something similar to that. I'm not like up to date on all my Buddhist terms uh it's not very visual though it's the point it's not like an encounter there's not like a lot of conversation with other th entities i hope i'm getting all this right but uh anyway you can get 5-meo dmt from many plants uh but you can also get it from the venom of this toad and there's this growing concern over people going down to tucson arizona catching the toads milking the venom and potentially hurting the animal uh, what are your thoughts on this? I think it's, uh, again, it's a very important point to raise. And uh, uh, 5-MeO-DMT uh, uh, can be, uh, is uh, found in uh, several plants. It's found in Sonoran Desert Toad, uh, which is the only toad that is found, curiously, of all the other toads. Uh, another uh, thing about 5-methoxy-DMT is that it's actually endogenous uh, to mammals, uh, just like DMT. It's found in small quantities in uh, humans, in uh, rats, for example. These are two species of mammals that it's been studied in. Uh, nobody knows what it does. It's found in tiniest, tiniest quantities, and... Even that is not not very consistent, but there are multiple reports that confirm that it is endogenous. So nobody knows what it does, whether for humans or for toads, other than being part of the toad secretions, which are um, which protected from predators. Yeah, the toad produces this venom to protect itself, and then people, you know, if they catch it, one of the best practices is not to express every single gland on the toad, because if you do that, it leaves it defenseless. Um, you can also spread uh, fungal diseases to amphibians if you're handling too many of them or putting too many in the same container. Um, it's recommended that you wear gloves while you do this. I mean, I feel like you just shouldn't do it at all, personally. There, there's other sources of 5-MeO-DMT. You can get it synthetic. Uh, why involve catching this animal and squirting this juice out of it in order to smoke it, to have a psychedelic experience. Like that seems unnecessary. And unlike a lot of the other plants that we've talked about here, there's really no indigenous history of using 5-MeO-DMT, at least not strong evidence of that. I mean, there's like toad drawings, but that could be any frog. Specifically the smoking aspect of it is a relatively new phenomenon started around the sixties and it's it's not like this ancient practice, whereas peyote, there's evidence of using that for 5,000 years or more. Yeah, indeed. And uh, 
uh, actually uh, the use of toads uh, and toad uh, secretions and actually it's not it's not toad venom it's toad secretions because venom is uh, something that's actively injected so you can be stung and it will be venomous or you can be bitten and it's venomous but this is just poison or a toxin toad secretions there is uh, no archaeological evidence or no conclusive evidence at all that it has been used for psychoactive purposes uh, by indigenous people there are some indigenous people now that adopted this practice and incorporated it into their rituals, but again, it's a very recent phenomenon. And recreational use of toads can be traced back to uh, 1980s, uh, uh, to the publication of the booklets uh, about Buffalo Varius uh, by uh, Albert Most. Uh, and that was very interesting uh, episode in Hamilton's Pharmacopeia uh, recently about it where he was trying to track down the real author of this booklet and the founder of the cho Church of the Toad of Light or something like that. And uh, I fully agree with you, Troy, that probably better not to harass toads and bother them because they're already under a lot of pressure, uh, toads and amphibians in general. There's they're probably uh, the group of animals under most stresses from all the things that are going on with human activity. Uh, they're highly sensitive to all the pesticides that can be found in water as a runoff from agricultural fields. They're highly sensitive to the effects of climate change and particularly Sonoran desert toad that lives in the desert. So any disruptions to the annual cycles of the rains, for example, or their being droughts can, be, can have catastrophic effect for the survival of toad. Uh, there is uh, massive problems with the roads and other infrastructure. Uh, a lot of toads are killed while trying to cross the road, but also they hang out uh, next to the roads uh, because roads have lights and lights attract insects and insects, uh, toads uh, hunt those insects. Uh, again, there is also major insect uh, decline in numbers of insect population, which again would adversely affect toads. There are so many factors that put uh, toads under stress that adding uh, additional thing could be the last straw that uh, really indicates that could be really damaging for the populations of toads. So I would highly recommend for anyone to use synthetic 5-methoxy-DMT. And moreover, synthetic is uh, probably much safer as well because you can wait exactly what dose you're taking uh, because the content of 5-methoxy-DMT in the toad secretions can vary greatly. It can, uh, there are estimates that it goes from about 5 to 30% of dry weight. Uh, but I don't know what factors affect it. It could be something in toad's diet. There are theories, for example, that uh, venom, uh, secretion composition depends on how many uh, darkling beetles those toads eat and other factors, maybe time of the year, uh, nutritional state, age. All those factors can influence the venom composition. So you pretty much ingest this unknown cocktail of ingredients uh, without knowing exactly how much 5-methoxy-DMT is there. Like it makes sense. And moreover, studies, epidemiological studies with the 
people who've taken both a synthetic, a pure 5-MeO-DMT uh, and toad venom indicate that both experience improvements in well-being and uh, mood and positive effects from it. Yeah. Uh, since you brought up Hamilton's pharmacopoeia, uh, he uses the term venom a lot. I think that's why I do it. He has some explanation for it that I can't remember, but uh, yeah, I, th I think you're right. It is probably better to call it a secretion. I just call it a venom because... There's, yeah, there's it's some... very very common in use. <laughs> Semantics, but uh it's like a biologist in me. No, it's not venom. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And uh the, the synthetic version is pretty easy to synthesize if you're a skilled chemist. I couldn't do it, but um yeah, it seems like a better option than catching this animal and squeezing it. And it's interesting that you brought up the diet, um, because I think that's exactly why poison arrow frogs um have the 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 poisonous secretions on them uh, is because they eat an insect and I can't remember what it is, maybe a blister beetle. Um, so if you remove the frog from that diet, like it's no longer going to hurt you if you touch it. Um, so maybe that's sort of similar to uh, what the Sonoran desert toad has. And, and I think that, yeah, you want to know what you're ingesting and not just this white creamy substance that could be anything, any concentration you want to have, because I, I think 5-MeO-DMT can be kind of dangerous sometimes. I mean... In terms well, of intensity, it's uh, only comparable to salvia, and I bring up salvia again. Like, it's it's equally, like, very, very short, but very intense uh, experience. It's uh, it's very... Of course, it's very different in terms of subjective experience from salvia effects. Uh, but in terms of level of intensity and duration, it's similar. Yeah, there's this major news story um, about uh, this Spanish porn star that gave 5-MeO-DMT to somebody and they died. And I don't think, I don't, who knows, like, unless you have a really detailed toxicology report, like, how much the 5-MeO-DMT contributed to that uh, overdose, which, of course, is tragic. But I, I know that uh, smoking it can involve a lot of thrashing, uh, vomiting, you know, it can be very uncomfortable um, and worth it in the end. Uh, hopefully, you know, people have an experience that can be long lasting and beneficial. Uh, but there are considerations to be there, be made there. And I think that's just more reason to, you know, not harass the toads. Mm -hmm. And also with the 5-MeO-DMT, you have to be very careful with the monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So, for example, never ever mix 5-MeO-DMT in things like changa, for example, which some people do with the DMT. It's really, it's very dangerous. And there are several documented fatalities, like in scientific literature documented, uh, with 5-methoxy-DMT uh, in combination with MAO inhibitors. That's one of the important, important things to be aware of. And again, with everything, uh, as we were talking about uh, ayahuasca, it's also a question of uh, the context that you're taking and uh, practitioners you do it with. Uh, there have been uh, scandals uh, involving several practitioners with uh, five uh, MeO-DMT that use, I would even describe it as abusive methods, like there is, uh, you can uh, look videos on uh, um, on YouTube about people having poured water in their mouth while they are 
at the peak of their 5MEO DMT experience or people been uh, getting electric shocks as well, which is like I consider highly unethical. So it's it's very important to research who you do it if you decide to do it in a uh, say in a medicine circles or in a ceremonial way. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of uh, bad practices uh, with 5-MeO-DMT, uh, you know, quote, shamans, people that administer it, and it's not, uh, we, we could talk about that all day. Uh, it's really disturbing, um, but... There, is even, there was even one practitioner that claimed to collect money for toad sanctuary and was giving lectures and uh, advertising how he is in the conservation of toads and he is going to buy this land and establish a toad breeding program and then he just pocketed the money and <laughs> that's the wow. last I heard about the toad sanctuary. That's really unfortunate because their, um, their range is definitely disappearing. Uh, they used to appear in California. Uh, they don't anymore because of agriculture. Um, they put these canals in and it just destroys their environment. The toads don't exist in California anymore. They're still in uh, northern Mexico, southern Arizona, southern New Mexico a little bit. But I think that's something to emphasize is that development really is the bigger problem here. There was a news story a couple of years ago where some people you know, were going down, catching toads, putting them in a plastic bag, and they got arrested. They got caught. But I mean, that, that's a really rare one-off occurrence. Like, I don't think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, uh, that there's a lot of people that are really going out and poaching the toads. If the toads are really threatened by development, agriculture, pesticides, and and like you said, these these lights that are built by roadways that attract the insects, to attract the toads, and then they become roadkill. Um, that is a far bigger problem. And the, the thing is not to like dismiss the poaching problem. I'm not going to say that's not non-existent. But if people actually care about protecting the toad, I think instead of criticizing, you know, psychonauts or, or hikers or whatever, uh, you know, work on efforts to like get Tucson to implement, you know, pesticide bans or turning Tucson's a dark sky city, so maybe less streetlights is a good idea. Um, that kind of thing. Those kinds of things can maybe have a bigger impact. And generally protecting Sonoran Desert habitat. Yeah. And making sure that there is space for toads to live. It's yeah. not encroached by, by development. And I think also that the problem for the toads is not so much individual psychonauts that catch and release maybe one or two toads. It's more the, um, the economies of scale. So what if say uh, hundreds or uh, rather than hundreds of people trying the toad, it goes up to thousands and uh, uh, higher and higher and hundreds, thousands, etc. cetera. Uh, and there are already reports I've seen on, on social media in Mexico about toads harvested commercially uh, for all those retreat centers that operate in Mexico and treatment centers where Toads is offered amongst many any number of other things uh, that's to treat anything you name it <laughs> from DSM five. <laughs> yeah, um, I and I think that there's that's a really 
something I really want to underline here is not to tell people what to do, but the, the whole point of this podcast episode is to just talk about uh, what people can actually focus on, the bigger problems. And I think that, you know, our out-of-control capitalist society is really a, a big aspect of all of this. Um, and I think that, you know, if you're really going to go out of your way to travel to go take ayahuasca or go poach a toad or you know go to texas and take peyote out of the wild like you understand the value of these medicines but then you probably also have good intentions to maybe you could reconsider this kind of thing and like think about how your actions have bigger consequences and that's you know we've talked about this before like personal responsibility and education uh are really key to to addressing this issue and uh, approaching this uh, also issues from the point of view of reciprocity. So if you have learned something important from uh, the experience, from the plant medicines, from animal medicines, uh, use it for the good. Uh, try to eat less meat, uh, support uh, conservation organizations, protect habitat. Yeah, just use less. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of that, are there any organizations that uh, you think are doing a good job on conservation for psychedelic plants or animals? Uh, yes, there are lots of organizations uh, uh, that are springing up all over, depending on uh, what plant uh, you have in mind. Like, for example, for uh, Iboga, there is um, there are organizations like Blessings of the Forest or uh, Ibango that are trying to uh, plant more Iboga in Gabon and uh, work with the local people. Uh, uh, ICERS is doing a lot of uh, work with Ayahuasca and Iboga as well, and communities. Uh, when it comes to Piyota, there is, of course, Cactus Conservation Institute, which I, uh, which I am a board member of, but also Indigenous Piyota uh, Conservation Initiative, uh, which is uh, even more important for survival of Piyota because uh, it's uh, uh, led by uh, Native Americans and uh, they are doing amazing work trying to protect Piyota and they're setting up uh, conservation projects, uh, cultivation projects. They're working with all the uh, local ranchers to try to protect Piyota on their land. Uh, so, yeah, do your research and support many organizations. And uh, uh, I would also say support organizations that only work specifically for psychedelic plants, but protect habitat in general. Uh, because uh, this is very important. You can't look at one thing without looking at the whole. And protection of the habitat itself is, on the grand scheme of things, is even more important. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's some sort of um, umbrella effect, you know, like if you kind of focus on the whole picture instead of just the things that are kind of cool. I mean, I think it's really amazing that these plants and animals have, and fungi, have evolved these chemical defenses uh, that, you know, also can have benefits to humans, but we also have to consider, uh, you know, the consequences of that. Um, and, you know, Focusing on protecting the whole thing, I think, is important. Okay. Uh, 
where can people find you if they want to learn more about you? Ah, that's a good question. I try to stay out of social media nowadays. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, you can uh, uh, link to my research gate or LinkedIn. Uh, well, I really appreciate your time today. This is a great topic. And, uh, you know, so many people are starting to care more about this, which I think is important, you know. It's really important nowadays, particularly because there is a growing awareness about the therapeutic potential of uh, psychedelics. There is a lot of good that they can do, but it's uh, just very important to approach it responsibly and uh, with respect, respect and reciprocity. Yeah. I agree. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you, Troy. It was fun. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. You made it all the way to the credits. The best part. This is where we tell you how you can learn more information and help support this program. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moran, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Co-producers this episode are Aaron Ferguson and me again. I did quite a bit of post-production. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers if you request them and other perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, so thanks for helping us out. We are ad-free and we want to keep it that way. Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us by spreading the word. Tell all your friends and family about this podcast advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. And then rate us wherever you get your podcasts so others can find us. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music this episode is by Ketza. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, I guess we have an Instagram account now, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's everything. Have a blessed week.